Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Thanks for tuning in today. I have something real special for you today. For over 20 years... I've had a chance to speak in 37 countries, trained over 3 million people, had a chance to interview or have guests of over 250 world leaders, politicians, actors, comedians, authors, a lot of sports figures. But there's one uh, group of people that I've had a particular fixation, if you will, on for a long time, and that's astronauts. As a child growing up in Ireland, I just remember thinking how outlandish it was that people would shoot for the stars and that there would actually be a man in the moon and I grew up in an era where a man hadn't walked on the moon and then he had and I just always remember being struck by that I remember being struck by the replays of John F. Kennedy's speech at Rice University where he talked about putting a man on the moon not because it's easy but because it's hard And I remember as I grew into young adulthood how just being struck with the concept of a country setting a goal. We're going to put a man on the moon, bring him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. A fabulous, fabulous thing. And so over the years, I've had a chance to meet many people affiliated with the space program. I've had uh, Jim Lovell. His story was famously depicted in Apollo 13. As he talks to me, he always refers to himself as Tom Hanks. That's how most people know him. Gene Cernan is a gentleman who was the last man on the moon I've had a chance to meet on several occasions. But the jewel of the crown and the guy that I pursued and wanted to have come and speak at our conference many years ago was none other than Neil Armstrong, the very first man and the only man who will ever be the first man on the moon, a modern-day Magellan. And so it took an awful lot of work. It took a lot of pushing and pulling and back and forth until he finally agreed to come to speak at our event. And even then, when he did come, he was extremely closed off. I had a series of meetings with him ahead of time, and he was just a very closed-off individual. And the reason was, is this was a guy who had been, he was a phenomenal test pilot. He was the right man for the right job. But he was a very, very private individual, who then, along with the other members of Apollo 11, they just became exploited. And every time a politician needed to get something done, they'd roll out the astronauts. They went on a world tour, and everyone who had an agenda would attach to him. And this is a very private guy. This is a guy that when his barber sold his hair clippings in his little town in Ohio, he goes, enough of this. And he basically went out of public view for about 15 years. And it was through a series of conversations and discussions and personal notes and work with a speakers bureau that he finally agreed to come take our event. But then there was a whole process by which getting to come and speak at the event and being open was very difficult. And our conversations had been very difficult, very, very closed off conversations. And it wasn't until the morning of the event uh, in Mastermind in 2004, we had 5,000 people in the auditorium. I'd brought my family in from Ireland. And Neil was just being very polite, but extremely closed off. And he's having lunch with my family and extended family. And a conversation broke out, and as the Irish do, telling stories and so on and so forth. My brother Dermot, who's now the CEO of Buffini Company, to break the ice, said, You know, Mr. Armstrong, when you walked on the moon, I wasn't even on this planet. And Neil responded the way he had to all comments that day and just nodded. And Irish people are very uncomfortable with silence. My dad, who is a very, very quiet man, interjected for the first time in the conversation that day. And he winked at his son Dermot, and he goes, Ah, Dermot. He said, it was because of looking at that moon, that's why you're on this planet. Well, Neil Armstrong starts breaking his heart laughing and almost upchucked his salad. And the next thing you know, he's talking about visiting Ireland and playing golf in Ireland and enjoying the Irish. And then he just kind of loosened up. And all of a sudden, he saw a real family with real people. We weren't looking to exploit them. And then he said, Brian, I'm supposed to be on these calls throughout the day. Would it be okay if I could sit in on your event? And I said, fine. So he sat backstage right behind where I was presenting all day. And each time I came out for a break, he would go, hey, what about this? And what about that? And we would just have this fantastically engaged conversation. He had pages of notes on what I was speaking about. Well, that went on through lunchtime. That went on in the afternoon. And finally, at the last break before he came out, he said, Brian, 
I know we have this prepared talk to go through. He said, would it be okay if we threw it out the door and just you and I chatted? And I said, great. I said, I have a list of things I would just love to know and let 5,000 people listen in on. And he said, I'd be good for that. And he sat down. We did this very, very powerful introduction video, which by the time he came out on stage, he was in tears. And he sat down, and for the next hour, we had a conversation. And I will say this, and my mother put it best, as she always did. She said, Brian, it was like sitting at the feet of your grandfather while he told you fabulous tales of where he'd been in the world. Only this case, it's where he'd been in the universe. And so for myself that day, and for the 5,000 people who had the pleasure of being in attendance that day, it was a time that none of us will ever forget. And we thought to commemorate the anniversary of the moon landing, we would bring out of our archives an interview with the late, great Neil Armstrong. And I hope this is as much a blessing to you as it has been to me and to the people who heard it. No one's ever really heard this recording. We've never made this uh, available to the public. But because of the opportunity with the Brian Buffini Show, we're able to make it available to more folks. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope you learn. I hope it inspires you. I hope it ignites something inside of you. And I hope you get to feel like my mother did, that you're sitting at the feet of your grandfather and you're hearing stories of fantastic things that amazing people did in our lifetime. So let's take a listen to Mr. Neil Armstrong. I can spend a lot of time talking about Neil Armstrong and putting a man on the moon, but I think it's a good thing to just show you. So what I'd like to do is show you a little video clip that maybe you can introduce him better than I can. Okay, let's take a look at this. Inspired by the late President Kennedy, in only seven years, America has risen to the challenge of what he called the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. After trailing the Russians for years with our manned space program, and after that sudden and horrible fire on the launch pad during a routine test that killed American astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chandler. There were serious doubts that we could beat the Russians to the moon. But tonight, a mere 18 months after the tragedy of Apollo 1, the entire world watched in awe as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. The big news came just a moment ago. Mission Control gave the spacecraft permission to go for the extravehicular activity, that is, for the walk on the moon far earlier than anticipated, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Mr. Neil Armstrong. They're not happy to see you. Oh, they are grand. Ay, ay, ay. Well, I was talking to them today about how we were bringing, essentially, a rocket scientist to meet a bunch of realtors. <laughs> Got it. You have some neat things to share. We've had a, a neat time today, Sharon. It's been a, a pleasure to get to know you some more. But there's some questions I want to walk you through, and we'll have a little chat. Okay. And these will be questions that we've been talking all day today with these folks about setting a goal, which Kennedy did. You know, we're going to send a man to the moon, and then the part you were interested in, return him safely. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, the whole process of the obstacles and the, the space program and all it took, and then what it took for you personally. So if you have a notepad ready... I think there's some great stuff, and, and I've learned so much from you today already. But I'd like to ask you a few things here if I could. In regards to the whole lunar program, if you were to give, and I am certainly a, a good candidate for Joe Everyman here, what are some of the reasons for the success of the program? 
What, what would you say? Well, first, we loved our work. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> if you went to the spacecraft center in Houston in the 60s and stood across the street from where we were all working, I guarantee you would not be able to tell when quitting time was or when starting time was because people just worked until what they were doing was done and then they went home. Wasn't a job. Yeah. Communication was substantially responsible for our success because we had to not only work together, but we had to communicate over vast distances on Earth in addition to being back and forth between Earth and the spacecraft. In the spacecraft, we didn't have much time to enjoy the views, and the views were wonderful. But there was just too much work to do, too much communication, not just between the crew, but between crew and and the people back in mission control on Earth. And, you know, every few minutes we'd hear something like, Hello, Apollo 11, this is Houston. (laughs) I don't know why they say that. Who else was it going to (laughs) be? You have a wrong number. (laughs) But if we had a little problem in the spacecraft, we could phone down to mission control, explain the problem. They could look at telemetry, and they could call the person. They had a hotline to all the contractors and most all the subcontractors. They called the person that assembled that part we were having a problem with. And he could undoubtedly shed some light on whatever the problem was. Well, that's a teamwork consideration. Teamwork was important. Uh Teamwork's important to much of our success. We all depend on other people to some extent on our successes. But I suppose it's also true that you can't depend on teamwork to do everything because some things, when it gets down to it, you have to do them yourself. And I guess the secret to me is you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. You want to make sure that you're going to be doing your part so that the team succeeds as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, we know you did your part. (laughs) As we go through this, you know, before the whole Apollo missions, you had to go through the Gemini. We saw some pretty wild footage here today of uh, NASA sent us some original footage of the Gemini spinning out of control and you're ready to kind of lose it and you redirect the ship, just kind of cool as a cucumber, let me fix a little button here or whatever you did. You know, the Gemini really was a neat little spacecraft. It was probably the first true spacecraft in the fact that it had onboard guidance and navigation. We could tell where we were before Gemini, the earlier spacecraft, the Russians and the Mercury spacecraft, they navigated by looking out the window. They said, ooh, that must be Africa down there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it wasn't very high tech in those days. (laughs) But we had some really good stuff in addition to navigation, and we had a computer, the first spacecraft to ever have a computer on it. Pretty primitive computer, but it was a computer. And we had rockets. We could change our orbit. That was the first spacecraft that could ever change their orbits. And we had a radar on board. And that allowed us to change our orbit and rendezvous with another craft. So on my Gemini flight, we did that. And I made the first successful docking of two craft in space, which went very well before the tumbling right. started and all that. But I also set another record on that flight. You know, with our computer and our navigation ability, we took great pride in landing very close to the ship, the aircraft carrier that was awaiting us. And my aircraft carrier was in the Caribbean, and I landed near Okinawa. Missed it by that much. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it might it might not be the furthest anyone's ever landed from their target, but I think it'll hold the record for a long time. It only looks like that on a map, doesn't it? <laughs> it's the half a world. 
we were talking at lunch, and I, I was asking you, what's it like on a rocket? And you said, well, it depends on what rocket you're on. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a different kind of lunchtime conversation than I'm used to having. <laughs> <laughs> In regards to the computer, we were chatting about this. On the actual Apollo, the landing module, the, the whole process, how powerful a computer did you have? In today's terminology, how powerful would you say it was? Well, it was not as good as a laptop, but it was probably a little better than a handheld. It actually had some of you that are computer nerds. Uh, He's a pilot. He's not a nerd. You know, you've got to have gigs and that kind of stuff. And we didn't have gigs or even megs. The uh, Apollo computer had 32K of fixed memory and 2K of erasable. That was it. No screen, no sound, no icons, no, no nothing. Just, and the, the keyboard just had 0 through 10, read, clear, and enter. I think it might have been one or two more keys. We, we had no graphics, no screen. On its best days, it couldn't get to 1 megahertz. <laughs> so it was slow and weak, but it got its there. Yeah, baby. Hey, Matt. Yeah. All right. We've got a couple of things here. Here's a question uh, one of my kids wants to know. I'm asking a question, so I take liberties. Um, Can you tell us what it feels like to leave your home planet? You know, many of you will remember that the the speed in Earth orbit is... uh, Oh, about 17,500 miles an hour. Any object that's in low Earth orbit's going about that fast. And that's where we'd gotten on the first parts of our, our launch. But once in orbit and making sure that everything was okay, we needed to fire up our rocket a second time and add about another seven or 8,000 miles an hour to kick ourselves out of Earth orbit and on a trajectory toward the moon. Now... You can't sit in any kind of machine and accelerate seven or 8,000 miles an hour without you suspecting that something's going on. Uh, But you see, it was at night. We were on the night side of the Earth over Africa, and we couldn't see, and you just couldn't get an appreciation of what it was that was happening. But as we came out into daylight, over Indonesia, we could see, and it was spectacular. We were ascending from the Earth at a rate of, you know, something like going outward at 5,000 miles an hour or 7,000 miles an hour, something like that. But from our point of view, we just seemed like we were motionless, and the Earth was sinking away from us. And we could see more and more of the horizon, the Pacific out there, the uh, Indian Ocean, Malaysia, all of a sudden we could see the whole sphere, a great gigantic blue ball covered with a white lace of clouds, and it was just sinking further and further away, sort of into that inky black sky. I said to myself, boy, this time you might have just gone and done it. Bev was asking you at lunch today about uh, what it feels like at the, at the point of, of impact. I mean, I don't know if you wear the Irish space program. I mean, if, if God hadn't created alcohol, we'd have gotten there before him. There's no doubt about it. Um, but at home, in describing it, it was like, well, you strap your rear end to a nuclear missile. It, it's kind of like what it is, isn't it? I mean, I know that's real technical. Well, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> but what, what does it feel like? I mean, when, when you're just taken out, I mean, this thing is, uh, what, the what is it, 7 five, million pounds of thrust? Is that it? Saturn V was, it was a big dude. You know, it weighed 3,000 tons. That's probably 10 times as much as a 747 or a C5 or something. It was a big thing. 
with uh, 7.5 million, 500,000 pounds of thrust, which is quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah 7.5 million. Well, when it lifts off, there's enormous noise and enormous vibration, but not much force on the body. It lifts off very gently. You just wonder when the thing is going to blow. <laughs> and you can't hear because there's so much noise from the Saturn V that uh, even with your head inside the helmet, you could not hear what people were talking to you over the radio, people in, in launch control. They couldn't receive them. But that's because in addition to the rocket's noise, you were also getting the reflection of the rocket's noise off the ground coming back up, so it was doubled. And once we got above 1,000 feet, something like that, we could hear, hear fine when all the reflected noise disappeared. But the Saturn V continued to vibrate throughout the entire first stage. It was like going on a very bad railroad track that rattles in all three directions. I mean, it, was, it was really a shaker. But when the first stage completed all its fuel and we lit up the second stage, it was just the opposite. It was so smooth and so quiet that we couldn't even be sure the engine was running. The best surprise was it was running. <laughs> <laughs> this might be similar, but um, what was the most spectacular sight uh, on, the, on the Apollo flight? You know, every, every sight in space is spectacular. I mean, you just can never look out the window without being amazed at what you see. And I hope that Technology will allow more and more people to go and see those sites and see our planet. It's a beautiful place, particularly when you see it from a distance. It's mm. a magnificent sight. But the most beautiful sight, as we were approaching the moon, and I'd say maybe we're five, 7,000 miles out, pretty close, <laughs> we flew into the moon's shadow which means that from our point of view, the moon was eclipsing the sun. So we would see the dark gray moon and behind it the corona of the sun coming out all around. It was a lovely sight. And now we were close enough that the, the moon wasn't a disk as we see it from here on Earth. It looks pretty flat to us from here. But it was clearly three-dimensional, a ball, and it was covered with ridges and craters and valleys and hills and all manner. And that was, it was in the dark, but it was being illuminated by the light of Earth. Now, because Earth is, as you know, 16 times bigger in area than the moon, and it's also more reflective, so consequently, Earth light is substantially brighter than moonlight at the same distance. And because of the oceans, that light is decidedly blue. Light is blue. So we were looking at this, this three-dimensional ball with all these valleys and ridges and craters and things. And it was illuminated by blue earth light. And we were flying toward it faster and falling faster and getting closer and getting faster. It was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen. <laughs> Clinging on. <laughs> All right. Earlier on today, I showed them a video clip of when you were coming down, your, your 35K computer kind of fritzed out. Yep. Okay, it had about enough to tell time. And then it fritzed out. And so they basically said, ignore the alarms, go for landing. Mm -hmm. You know, take over manually mm -hmm. and fly this bird. Mm -hmm. And so you were heading for, uh, I guess, a series of craters or, okay, bad stuff. So you took over and there, there wasn't a lot of gas left. I can't remember specifically. A lot of people talk about the different numbers. What, what do you think the numbers were? How much gas did you think you had left in the tank when you landed there? Well, you know, the tank is a sphere. Mm -hmm. And when you have a small amount of liquid in the bottom of a sphere... It's very difficult to know just how much is there. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a very flat, shallow, curved surface. We had a port 
on a probe that went down, and when the liquid went past that port, it turned a light on. And at that point, we computed that we had approximately 30 seconds left. And that light came on, and we were still flying. <laughs> but we were getting fairly close. And I think when we touched down, we probably had something like 20 seconds. But no one will ever know for sure because there wasn't any way of measuring right. just how much fuel was left. Now, the stories are, again, you can verify this, they had you guys all heart monitored up and whatever else. Now, this is what I've read this in the mission report. I've read this in a lot of different places, that Neil Armstrong's heartbeat was cool as a cucumber, and Buzz Aldrin was... Not true. Makes for a hell of a story, Neil. I don't know what Buzz's was doing, but mine was going... (laughs) (laughs) And and that's normal for me, and I wouldn't want anyone to think I wasn't interested at that point. (laughs) But... One of the reasons I mentioned Bud, and this is kind of a funky thing, but obviously some guy challenged him this year that you guys never really did this, and you shot a video in Nevada, and, and Buzz, 72-year-old old man that he is, bopped him one and sent him on his rear end. <laughs> they like that. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you that question because I know you're <clears throat> even worse. Um, <laughs> but there's things that you did that can prove you guys were there. What would be some of the examples? Oh, gosh. You know, on Apollo 12, they brought back part of the Surveyor spacecraft that had been on the moon for several years. And we brought back a number of minerals that have never been found on Earth. Mm-hmm. And we even got one named after us, our Malkalite, for Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. Our oh. Malkalite. Yeah. Very cool. And, of course, you know, the world loves conspiracies. Sure, sure, Conspiracy sure. theories are always very popular, and so I don't mind when these guys say, oh, you won't. Now, but you have to find a way around certain facts. One is they claim we were just flying in Earth orbit while we were doing this instead of going to the moon, but unfortunately, in addition to our own country, which was tracking where we go, I hope they were, a lot of people in other countries were tracking our trajectory as well, including some countries that we weren't on very good terms with at the time. But let me just tell one story that's one of my personal favorite. Scientists can give thousands of these reasons why they can see it couldn't have been. I think probably the only thing harder to do than fly to the moon would have been fake it. (laughs) (laughs) There was an astronomer that proposed an experiment shortly before the Apollo voyages when it became obvious that they were going to try to go to the moon. His idea was measure the distance between Earth and moon by measuring the time it took a beam of light to go from Earth up to moon and back to Earth. Now, in order to do that experiment, they needed some kind of a mirror up on the moon to reflect the light back. My job on the experiment was to install the mirror. So I got to the moon and started to install the mirrors. Now, the only reason this idea works at all is because of a peculiarity that you all know about. The Earth rotates once every 24 hours, and so we see the sun come up in the morning and go across the sky and go down in the west. And then we see them at night, we see the moon go up, we see the stars move up. Now, if you're on the surface of the moon, the sun, just like here on Earth, comes up in the east, goes across the heavens, sets in the west, takes it 14 Earth days to do that. So a complete day-night cycle on the moon is about 28 days. But the Earth doesn't rise in the east and go across the sky and say, it stays fixed in the sky at approximately the same point all the time. So if I could get the mirrors pointed at the Earth, they would always stay pointed at the Earth and people could 
fire light beams up there for months and years. And they wanted to make sure that this alignment was very important, that it be very simple to do. It had to be so foolproof that even a simpleton could do this job. That's where I came in. <laughs> so we set about putting the mirror in position, and immediately the guys on Earth, who happened to be at Lick Observatory, which is on Mount Hamilton, and you see it if you drive down through 101 through San Jose on top of the hill up there. It's silver domes up there. That's where they were. And they couldn't wait to get that laser zapping. Now, I thought it would have been nice if they said, Are you ready up there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not duck or anything. Just shoot them, you know. And... Now, these guys up at Mount Hamilton, they really were into this experiment, and they really liked these laser beams, the little, little bumps of laser light that were sticking up there. And when they didn't get back, they worried about it. I mean, they never did catch any of the little fellas. And they tried it again. They still didn't get any. They were beginning to think that they had a simulton up there aligning the mirror. But they kept fiddling with their equipment, and... They got one. All of a sudden, they got one. And they fiddled them a little more, and then they got another one. They got another one. And they, and they found that the reason they hadn't been catching them in the first place was that they'd used the wrong location, the wrong latitude and longitude of Lick Observatory, which is the same position they'd used ever since it was built in 1890-something. <laughs> and so the first results we got from mirrors on the moon was the proper position of Mount Hamilton on Earth. <laughs> and, it, I mean, it wasn't just these guys at Mount, Mount Hamilton that were shooting their lasers. The guys in other countries... Had to be, guys in France were shooting their laser beams. Everybody wanted to know where they were. Now, the theory said that you ought to be able to calculate the distance between Earth and Moon to an accuracy of, of 11 inches. You may wonder why anybody would want to know the distance to the Moon within 11 inches, but I mean, we had a mileage report for our travel voucher. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, there were a lot of, I mean, guys, guys were shooting their lasers at the moon all over the world, and they do so to this day. They're still getting answers back about how far they are, which has a lot of useful, it really does. You find out it's, it's difficult for a non-astronomer to explain it, and I won't try to, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of those mirrors. And I submit that's my exhibit A for why... We really got there. That's cool. <laughs> Great stuff. You know, in passing, in passing today, we talked a little bit about um, just some of the byproducts of the benefits of the space program. It wasn't just this all-encompassing, you know, get a couple of guys on the moon and come back and say we did it. It's transformed all of our lives. Can you give a couple of examples of some of the technology that we use today that came from it? NASA puts out a book every year that has kind of spin-off results from technology's use of things that were developed during the okay. space program that now have been adapted to other things. And there are, you know, thousands of them each year. I think some of the most exciting are the ones in medical science. It's just been enormous use of remote sensing and remote control. We, we now take things for granted on being able to do remote operations and see inside the body in ways that you could never see before. Much mm -hmm. of that, and I won't say all because certainly not all, it's mm -hmm. coming from a variety of sources, sure. not just one thing, but the growth in technology engendered by sure. the space efforts have contributed a lot. I feel very uh, pleased that that's happened and okay. I, I think it, it'll continue. Change their lives. I got one last one from me. There's one thing I want to know since the day you agreed to come. And as I mentioned to you, we live on a house, top of a hill, and we get so many great views of the sky at night. 
And here's the question that's just been, every time I go home and I see the moon, this is the question I've been wanting to ask you. It's a crystal clear November evening. Little nip in the air. It's just as clear as can be. And you're driving home, and you get out of your car, and you look up. And you see this, this image. What comes to your mind? What jumps to your mind? Girls. Nothing quite as sexy as an astronaut, is there? <laughs> do you think technically, do you think, oh, that's this or that's that step? I mean, just, just stuff like, man, I can't believe I was there. Or do you look at it scientifically or is it just like... You know, when you look at a globe of the Earth in your home or library or wherever you see it, you see places on there. You see countries and you see cities. And mm-hmm. some you identify with because you've been there mm-hmm. or you read about it or you have relatives living there or something. And when I see this globe, I see places I've flown over, places I've been, some places where colleagues of mine have landed and explored the surface. Sure. But I think the striking part to me is how little we know about it yet. We know a thousand times more than we did when I was a boy, maybe more than a thousand times more, certainly that much, and yet we've only explored a teeny tiny fraction of this place, and there's there's a lot more questions than there are answers there. Wow. Great stuff. Thank you. Okay. He's answered my question. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some questions from the audience. This is your chance to ask a question of Neil Armstrong. We want to take them one at a time. Keep them short. Stand up. Tell us who you are, where you're from. Hi, Neil. I'm a physicist, so I kind of was following that back in those days, and I watched you when you landed. I had heard that they, when they designed the lander, they put the feet on the pods, and they made them very, very large because they had anticipated that the surface of the moon had a very, very thick layer of dust. And yet when you actually landed, as you mentioned, I think, there was only a very thin layer I'm just wondering what the, uh, the scientists were thinking at that point. You're quite correct on all points. The lunar module was designed before we had very much information about the surface. And there was a school of thought led by a professor at Cornell who said that the surface is very likely to be sort of like cotton candy. And even though the lunar module was not particularly heavy at that point when it got rid of most of its fuel, it still had a chance of sinking in. But we didn't think that this was likely. The surveyor spacecraft had landed before us, and we knew from pictures sent back from it what the surface bearing strength was underneath the surveyor, and we could compute what it might be if it were the same in the place we landed. Besides, the professor from Cornell had never been right about anything else. So we... <laughs> Let's take this baby up and see what she can do, right? But, you know, did... if it did sink in, we were prepared to leave, and we could. I see. Okay, Thank great you. Stuff. Who's next? What's your name? Janelle. Janelle. How old are you, Janelle? I'm 12. And where are you from? Danville, California. Danville, California. All right. Welcome. What's your question? Mr. Armstrong, when you came back, did you ever want to go again? I certainly would like to go, and if that's an offer, I accept. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep, no doubt. Thank you, Janelle. Does anybody doubt him? (laughs) Who's next? Hi, who are you? Where are you from? I'm Camille Hendricks from Houston, Texas. In fact, our office is right directly across the street from NASA, and I see those jet engines out there every day when I go to work. We have always been taught to set goals for ourselves. What kind of goals did you set for yourself as a young man and then as you have uh, progressed in age? Thank you for that question. Let me back up a little bit to the Apollo goal, which you all talked about earlier in in the day and so on. The nice thing about that goal was that it was so simple and understandable. 
send a man to the moon, return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. I mean, everything you needed to know was Mm. there. And I think it's a great advantage when goals can be stated in such a way that they're not ambiguous and you know exactly what it is you're trying to do. And that was a model for me. I've never been as good at doing that for myself as uh, Jack Kennedy did for our program. But the important thing to me, and I, I think probably to many here, is that you want to make a mark. You'd like to leave the world a little better than when you came. That's my goal. Number two. Yeah. Tell us who you are and where you're from, please. Anderson. I'm from San Rafael, California. Hi. My question, Mr. Armstrong, is when you got out in space for the first time and you looked back and viewed the Earth from way out there, did it alter or influence or change your feeling about the beauty and the preciousness of this physical globe that we live on? And also about the humanity that lives here? Thank you. Certainly, no one could fail to be impressed with the views that you have. And when you look back to the Earth, as I said earlier, you are very aware of the unique nature of our planet compared to everything else we've seen. It's the only blue one. And you look down, it's got lightning strikes and stuff like that, and you might think, whoa, I don't think I want to go there. But we know that the lightning strike is only an inconvenience in in general. I think everyone has, every person that's been into space has thought of the fragility, what they call the fragility of our, our planet and how important it was to find ways to protect it. Now, we all disagree, however, on just how that best be done. And it's not clear, necessarily, just what the answers are yet. But studying them is well worth the effort. And uh, my great hope is that this 21st century will be the century in which, one, we really start to understand our own planet. Two, we really start to understand ourselves. Okay, a couple more. Yes. How did you handle the negative, doubting naysayers around you prior to this in terms of keeping your own positive perspective and that of the other crew members? I'm not sure that I've really ever thought about that in that light before. I must say that my colleague, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11, was enormously helpful in this regard. He reminded us on quite a few occasions that we shouldn't worry about things that had already been proven in the past. We needed to accept those and go on because we had enough unknowns that had not been explored yet that we needed to face that we should not use up what emotion we had and what concerns we had on things that we really either couldn't do anything about or second had already been proved to be doable in the past. So I think I was pretty positive most Mm -hmm. of the time, but I'll admit to you, I wasn't always perfect. For example, we had a lot of ways to do things in most cases, but when we had to take off the lunar surface, we only had one engine to do it, and it had to work. Now, it was kind of a nice engine because it didn't require ignition system or a spark plug or anything like that. If you just opened the valves and let the two propellants go together, they would self-ignite, and it was a very simple system. And I said to the program bosses with my negative thinking, well, why don't we just put a couple of big manual handles in there and we'll just turn the valves on ourselves and start the engine and go. But NASA likes to have more technical configuration to their system, so they like to have a lot of solenoids and valve drivers and circuit breakers and various things. And 
So I really spent a lot of time studying that circuit breaker and those valve drivers and those solenoids and those wiring diagrams so that when I couldn't open the two valves manually, I could press the button and have great level of confidence that it would work. So That's neat. At NASA, you guys were surrounded by a bunch of fired-up people. It's what you began with today. You couldn't tell what quitting time was. People were working. People were dedicated. People were passionate. I'm sure it was a pretty positive environment to go to work every day. People were, felt part of a team, and it was a winning team. And when I pushed that button to leave the moon, I was sure it was going to work. <laughs> I right. conquered my negative thoughts. Powerful. Great. We only got time for two more. Two more. Yes. Hi. Who are you? Zachary Hansen. How old are you and where are you from? I'm seven years old and I'm from Discovery Bay, California. Great. What's your question, Zachary? I was wondering how many days did it take for you to get to the moon? Excellent. How many days did it take you to get there? It takes three days to go and three days to come back and then plus however long you stay there. But I would not recommend that you stay more than two or three nights because the hotel rates are very high. (laughs) Rob Foy from Ellicott City, Maryland. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Mr. Armstrong, when you said one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, was that planned or were you just inspired by the moment? (laughs) Well, first, you have to blame me for it. But I didn't think about it till after we landed. And, and the reason was, statistics aside, my gut feeling was that we had a 90% chance of returning safely to Earth on that flight and a 50% chance of making a successful landing on the first try. We thought it very likely that because that part of the descent to the lunar surface uh, had never been demonstrated before, and it was a very complex part of the, of the mission, and uh, the hardware was very heavily utilized in that part, and the, the opportunities for things to go wrong were large. So we thought that the very good chance in that first try that something would go awry and we'd have to abort the mission in the middle of the descent someplace and, and go back and rendezvous and, and go home and try it again some other month. That being the case, with only a 50% chance in my mind, I didn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about something that, to say that I only had a 50% chance of needing to say. <laughs> but I did think about it after landing, and, uh, and it was kind of simple statement and just stepping off, and it seemed, seemed right. I hope you put up with it. Okay. Young lady, you have the last word of the evening. Who are you and where are you from? Please let everybody know. Hi. I'm Sandra Alt from Kent, Washington. And my question, first of all, comment. My grandmother was born in... 1884, traveled by covered wagon, train, plane, and then she saw two world wars, and a few months before she passed away in 1994, I asked her of everything that she had seen in her lifetime, what was the most memorable? And she said, seeing the man walk on the moon. And... And I get to ask the question that she always wanted to know the answer to. In your lifetime, what is the most memorable thing that you have ever witnessed? Or what is your most memorable thing? This is the last one. (laughs) You can leave it all hanging out. You know, it's, it's tempting to make a smart answer. But the fact is... I'd have a hard time picking something above uh, 
Apollo 11 on a technical grounds. On a personal grounds, I think you always have family things that are yeah. even more important to you. Birth of a child. Thank you so much. On a personal note, this has been one of the best days of my life. I hope it has been for you. Incredible. Neil, blessings on you. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I remember standing on that stage in Las Vegas all those years ago and thinking to myself, how in the world did I end up here? Five generations of house painters before me. I come to America with 92 bucks in my wallet. And uh, less than 18 years later, I'm standing on stage with Neil Armstrong in front of 5,000 people. How did that ever happen? But I think that's a testimony to mindsets and motivation and, and the methodologies of success. And it's been paying off in my life ever since. I remember the words of Neil Armstrong, make the world a little better than the way you found it. And that's certainly something I took from that day that I'll continue on myself. I remember shortly after Neil came to Vegas, my family and I and my mother and father who were in town from Ireland, we went to the Kennedy Space Center to kind of complete the trip. And my father was standing there. And even though my father's American born, he left when he was seven years of age and he's in his mid 80s now. But at the time he's standing there in his 70s, and we're at the Kennedy Space Center, and there is a Saturn V rocket, the length of a football field, suspended from the roof of this one display. And my father looked up at it and said, Brian, the Yanks can do anything they put their mind to. And, you know, I hope that this podcast might remind people to do that, that America is still the land of opportunity, and you can still do anything you set your mind to. And if people decided a long time ago, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him safely to Earth, and we're going to do it before the end of the decade, by George, they did it. And today is the anniversary of that, and that's why we wanted to release this very, very special show for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you share it with your friends. You get a chance to listen to the Brian Buffini Show for free. All we ask of you is that you tell your friends about it. Our goal is to influence positively as many folks as we possibly can. That there's a good life waiting for you and for them. And there's some practical mindsets, motivations, and methodologies that you can learn to get there. Keep sending your reviews on iTunes. I enjoy reading them. And if you want to catch any of the show notes from today's program or any of the great quotes that were shared from Mr. Armstrong, go to brianbuffini.com and they're all there for you. So as I finish here today, I'll leave you with an Irish blessing, as I always do, that my grandfather used to say. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet up with the man in the moon, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. 